Yes, hello. This is the Doug and Tracy Show. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Pilgrim's Podcast headquarters in West Hollywood, California, it's the Doug and Tracy Show, featuring Republican communication strategist Doug High and Democratic communications consultant Tracy Seffel and your host, D-Twit. Today's questions will be in brand new categories such as midterms, best tag team, favorite salt cheese, and basic dogs. The program wishes to thank Julie Mason and Patrick Faris for their kindness and consideration. And now, without further ado, here's Doug and Tracy. Hello, this is the Doug and Tracy Show. Hello, Doug and Tracy Show. Today, we have the great honor of having with us Tracy Seffel and Doug High, collectively known as the Doug and Tracy Show when they appear, as they frequently do, on the POTUS Press Pool with Julie Mason. And we will begin this with the, the, the one question that we ask on our more extended podcast episodes, which is, where are you today on the what the fuck meter? And just by, by way of explanation, the what the fuck meter ranges from a one, you just had some some cheese and some grapes and are, are, are calm and sated and are sitting in your easy chair relaxing and listening to some classical music to 10, somebody just doused you in honey and you're currently rolling in a hill of fire ants. That, which is sort of where most people uh, over the past uh, eight months or so since we started doing this have been falling uh, closer to 10, I guess, than to one. Uh, but if you if you had to gauge yourself on that scale as we're having this conversation today, where do you feel you would be? Well, staying? I'm in Washington, D.C., sitting here with my good friend, Doug, and I think it's raining outside. And for some reason, things don't feel quite as awful. So I'm I'm feeling like a <laughs> six and a half. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm probably a two or three. I feel fine. And I, look, these are challenging times. I, I think a lot of people internalize all of it way too much, um, which is why so many people, regardless of what side they're on, are angry. And I was that was actually going to be my next question. So one thing that has come up a lot on these podcasts is, and really the reason why we started is because people were so, I mean, really head full of steam, hair on fire, the whole deal. And so I was going to ask the two of you, as two people who are much closer than any of us listeners to what's actually going on, how do you guys keep things calm and in perspective? Is that always easy because you know that the whole thing follows a certain predictable format? Or is that at times challenging what you do to make it easier for yourselves at those times? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, there's always something next that's, that comes along. And that's, I mean, with Trump, that's true on basically an hourly basis. Um, but when you work on political campaigns or in Capitol Hill, um, you know, you don't I don't think quite often you have time to internalize things because you have to focus on um, what you're doing now and what's, you know, what's coming tomorrow and, and how you're going to get there. Um, it tends to be a bit more process oriented. And most voters don't really care about process. Um, <laughs> like I, I get on all sides why why people are angry. But the the intensity of it, uh, I think, is is not very healthy um and just you know working in and around politics for so long uh, you know i have i'm so close to it that i'm a little detached from it if that it, it may be a bit paradoxical but you know you tend to tracy and i are both fans of quincy and you might have heard that and if you watch quincy <laughs> you know while he's dicing a patient he is trying to figure out that it wasn't the clam dip that it was murder um, and in fact, I would say that Tracy and I look at it in, in the same way. Otherwise, we'd be focusing on blood and guts and how awful they are every day. 
I'll just let those words hang in the air. The other thing about Quincy is another <laughs> day there'll be another murder, another body. So I think that one of the survival strategies that I and I think Doug and I have talked about this, certainly a lot of our mutual friends, you have to you you have to pick your level of engagement. It's one thing to have TVs on in the background all day. It's another thing to have your phone with your social media at your, you know, at your side 24/7. And it's an entirely different thing to put it down once in a while. I think the the by far the most the, the worst thing you can do for your mental health is a try to follow everything that's happening every day and B, try to understand it. I think that what works as a, a, a safety mechanism for me is I may see the headlines as they fly by, but I can choose to not dive deep into something that I know is going to be really disturbing. So we have that luxury by the, by the nature of our work. We don't have to know a deep analysis of every single horrible headline that's going to scroll past us. And I think that's the only way that we stay sane. That's actually really interesting. I haven't heard it put that way before. That's really interesting. A lot of us got to know you on the POTUS press pool as you're affectionately known, the Dog and Tracy show. But let's go for a moment, if you if you will indulge me, let's go back for a second. And I wanted to ask both of you, how did you initially become interested in politics and how did you choose that as something you wanted to do as a career? Well, I'm not sure I chose. I, 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 um, I'm kind of grappling with that. I feel like I might be here again. I will. It it shows you, Tracy. Well, I thought I was going to be a professor, and that was the way I had structured my life and my postgraduate education. And in the course of conducting my dissertation research, I was in D.C. a lot, collecting data. And I think I, I sort of, I guess I drank the Kool-Aid because I didn't <laughs> leave D.C., and I put my dissertation aside. So I don't know. Um, I was tricked, maybe. But here I am. <laughs> Doug, were you similarly tricked into your career choice? Um, well, I certainly didn't do anything postgraduate. Um, no, I, you know, I was always interested in politics at an early age, um, um, and and media as well. Uh, consumed, you know, consumed media. Watched Sunday shows every Sunday. I don't exactly know how or why, but did. Started working um, on campaigns at a pretty early age, and you know, when I graduated. And that was kind of the only thing that I knew how to do. You know, I wouldn't have known how to get a job on Wall Street or become a professor or, you know, work at the local like, work at the local bank. I wouldn't have known how to do that. But I had done internships in D.C. Um, and had worked on a couple of campaigns. And so the path forward it was not the obvious one. It was it was sort of like the natural and only one. So we have to talk about two things that are incredibly important to to uh, to Pooligans. Number one music and number two wrestling. fantastic and luckily we have two perfect specimens for just those two pursuits so uh, tracy if you would you're a classical pianist so i was i was wondering when did you start pursuing that what does it mean to you and i i read how there's now more classical music at your home because it's something that you find calming at moments when things get a bit stormy oh my gosh um what a pleasure to be able to talk about something that i i sometimes forget is an important part of my life. Um, but yes, I began studying piano at a very young age. Um, I took to it. I continued through school. I um, 
was lucky enough to get a scholarship to get a degree in piano performance as an undergrad. And I had the pleasure of teaching a lot of young children piano. And when I moved to DC for a long time, I didn't have a piano. My The piano I'd grown up with as a child is still at my parents' house. And after a couple years in DC, I purchased a, a Clavinova, which if you know about those keyboards, they're unique. They're not just your basic synthesizer, but they have responsive touch to the keys. So they're very close to a piano, although still an electronic instrument. Um, so that was fun. It was fun to have. But when my husband and I moved to Chicago, I how shall I say this? That was when I said that there would be a new piano coming to live with us and uh, mm -hmm. got got a new piano in Chicago. It's it's the best part of the house. It's beautiful. It's uh, I believe like so, so many musicians say that pianos can be sort of alive and it's mm -hmm. there when I need it. Um, I think as an expression, it's a way to get out frustrations and anger or confusion or sadness or all of the above. And I love to play anything. I wish that I was still actually studying with someone because then I think I would be continuing to get better. Maybe I've plateaued skill-wise, but it's still something that I can do and I can do for hours at a time. And wow, do I feel better afterwards. Such an amazing skill to have. Truly. Everyone needs music in their life. Was it with maybe your your love of classical piano in mind that inspired you to be on the board of People's Music School? Um, absolutely. When I learned about them, the, the school in Chicago that offers free, really high-quality music education to kids ages 5 through 18 um, in neighborhoods in Chicago that don't have those types of offerings. The school is a place where these kids can come and experience the joy of learning an instrument and experience all of the life skills that come with that. Um, when I learned about them shortly after moving to the city, I uh, ingratiated myself on them and said, guess what? You, you get me now too. And I love that place. <laughs> Peoplesmusicschool.org. Check them out. Yep, a really great organization, an organization that I'm sure helps a lot of kids with something that I, I think is, in America at least, is, is woefully underrepresented at schools and keeps getting cut from schools Absolutely. as well. Absolutely, whereas I guess wrestling is kind of a thing that... <laughs> Not really taught schools, and in fact, wrestling programs in major universities throughout the country are threatened and having their funding cut or eliminated, but that's neither here nor there. Wait, Doug... I don't know this, and I don't mean to. Title Nine. I don't mean to overstep our host, but how do I not know? Were you a wrestler? No. You were never actually into collegiate wrestling. No. Your love of wrestling really comes from the pro Started side. On the professional, yeah, like like everyone else. <laughs> I believe I was the only subscriber in Switzerland during the eighties of of uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Very nice. No, nobody had an and the wrestler and whatever other magazines were yeah. put out. I just subscribed to all of them. Tell me a little bit. When did that start for you? And then I, I know this is going to be difficult. I have to ask you for your for your three favorite wrestlers and your three favorite tag teams of all uh, time. Okay, that's probably not too hard. Um, I watched it my whole life. Um, you know, I grew up in 
when I was really small in Richmond, Virginia, and then in Winston-Salem and in both North Carolina, in both of those areas, you know, you'll, you'll remember the mid, Mid-Atlantic Territory, NWA. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, my favorite. That, my absolute favorite of every, all time. So yep. uh, my Ric all-time Flair. favorite is and always will be Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, there you go. I was a huge Ricky Steamboat fan um, and ended mm-hmm. up in college working out. The gym that I went to was owned by him. And so um, I, got to, I got to meet him, uh, you know, a, at least a dozen times. Um, Ivan Koloff worked out at the gym as well. Um, it'd, it'd be tough naming a third, but, you know, th- that list is then 20 people long from anybody from, you know, Savage to any of the Andersons, um, Jimmy Suka, mm-hmm. you know, on, on down the line. Um, Roddy Piper, certainly. Um, tag teams. Flair and, and Valentine were a great tag team. Jimmy Snooker mm-hmm. and Paul Orndorff were a great tag team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick, Ricky Steamboat and, and Jay Youngblood, one of the all-time greats. I think it's hard to do much better better than those. And then, obviously, um, any permutation of the Anderson brothers. How about uh, how about Road Warriors? Where where would you rank I them? I never loved the Road Warriors. They were fine. I, ne- I never loved them. Um, Ivan Koloff, w- you know, whatever he would do with Nikita, I was a big fan of. Um, and politics playing a role in everything. Obviously, Ivan Koloff's career was shortened because of um, Glasnost and, and Gorbachev's popularity in the United States, which is a whole other topic. But um, I was never a huge. <laughs> they were fine. Yeah. That just wasn't my thing. NWA definitely the best of the best organization. One that I one that I still dearly miss. I, I feel yeah. like do you do you still watch wrestling today? What do you think of of today's wrestling? Um, you know, I I my official line is that I don't. But if I'm home and I'm flipping through the channels and it's on, I'll stop and watch. Um, I like John Cena. Then I have to think a bit hard about who else I like. I mean, The Rock's obviously great, but you know, the, the reality is it's all changed. You don't really wrestle anymore. It's all ten minute interviews that aren't as good as anything that Flair ever did. So it's a completely different, completely different model. Have you watched any of the shoot interviews on on YouTube? Any of the the, the wrestlers talking about the good old times and sort of the stories behind how all of that? A went? little bit. Mostly, me and some friends are emailing each other old, you know, the the old interviews, um, which mm-hmm. happens pretty much on a weekly basis. Thank God for <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> Thank God. For, see, YouTube is good for something. Maybe not necessarily for politics, but old shoot interviews of wrestlers totally also. Absolutely. There. Tracy, the yep. shoot interview is when a wrestler, this is a bit controversial, an old wrestler will, you know, tell the behind the scenes story and um, what was really happening and so forth. Is that like a magician giving away his, his secrets? Sort of. Exactly. Ooh. Yeah. Which is why it's kind of looked down upon. But there, there is there is one wrestler in particular, King Kong Bundy, who apparently w- had a lot of grievances and so sort of took to those shoot interviews like few others. And, and he definitely, he, he lays yeah. it on. Yeah, those Bundy. Are, those... <laughs> Bundy was good. Yep, I've met him. Yeah. He's a big dude. Oh, he's a he's a huge. Have you ever met George the Animal Steel by any chance? No, I wasn't a George Steel fan. The, the whole shake you mean with the mm-hmm. turnbuckle and everything? exactly. What a fascinating man, though. Ultimately, I mean, he's now he's a, he's a preacher. He has his own church. He has his own congregation. Oh wow. A, a really a really educated, incredibly smart man who had this act of. Sorry, sorry, Trace. You had this act of painting his tongue green, turning to the turnbuckles and ripping the turnbuckles open uh, with his teeth. Yeah, that was sort of his well. Act. That sounds like a precursor to the Trump administration. <laughs> <laughs> and full circle. Thank you for that segue, Tracy. That was very kind of you. I mean, anybody who's seen Taming of the Shrew has seen some version of that, of right? Of course. 
Of course. It's all Shakespearean. True. Let, let's just quickly, we don't have to do it for a long time, but let's quickly do midterms. How do you feel now post-midterm? It felt like, at least on this podcast, right, everybody was incredibly amped up for these midterms in, in the, in the run-up. And then that Tuesday finally came, the votes were cast, and everything sort of seemed to dissipate. The Democrats didn't really do any victory laps or vic huge victory dances that I saw, at least not the politicians. And the Republicans, not really a huge mea culpa either. And now everything seems to sort of have settled down. Or does does that look different from where you guys are? Did, do, do you sense that there was a, a some kind of, of shift, a significant shift of some sort? I think it's interesting the way you, you have described the energy that it was sort of peaked. And then it was kind of just like a fizzle out afterwards. Um, and I, I think that there's some degree of truth to that. One of my biggest concerns about the midterms for the Democrats is that as a party, we have a, a bias toward trying to make cultural stars out of our candidates. We have to, um, you know, they've got to have the cool T-shirt or the rock band or the you know, viral video, like there's something about Democrats that has really honed in on cultural superstardom for candidates. And while that has been a terrific way to amp up enthusiasm, it doesn't translate into electoral victories. And you could go across the country and kind of point to some of the people that you, you would rightly be thinking I'm, I'm thinking of. Whereas the Republicans, <laughs> I think for Republicans, one of the, the sort of tried and true principles that I've seen, candidates that I've worked to defeat or candidates that I've seen in office, there's just sort of a sense of purposefulness about a Republican campaign and candidate that doesn't involve trying to make them a rock star, It's like, just go run your race, win the thing, get the job, be the legislator. And Democrats get too tripped up with the superstar stuff. And to me, that has been a contributor to the sort of flat post-midterm. You know, there are amazing things that we are celebrating, that I am celebrating, that Democrats are celebrating. We could go over them by, you know, point by point. And there's so many things, never mind taking the House for, for the Democrats. But the, 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 like, air goes out of the balloon when we overly fixate on these so-called superstars. I think that that's a lesson Democrats need to learn and need to learn quick. Probably the most uh, egregious one of those would be the Beto situation, I'm assuming, in, in the, as far as the midterms are concerned. <laughs> yes, situation is a good word for it. Right, where, where cult of personality really became a thing. But conversely, do you think that on the Republican side, there was a thirst for stardom and that that maybe explains part of the Trump phenomenon? No, no, I don't see it. I don't see it reflected in polls. I don't see it reflected in issue sets that people care about. And I don't see it reflected in the sort of going about your life. I don't think people are just wishing that they had a political star to hook to. I, I don't think that that's how people experience politics. I think that's how a media lens thinks people experience politics. I think that's maybe how Hollywood thinks people experience politics. But it's, it's more like um, 
I think, uh, fabulous columnist for Yahoo News, John Ward. He had a great piece about this where he, he likened elections to going to the dentist for most people. It's just like a thing you do and, you know, you know you need to and maybe it's not the most exciting thing, but you'll do it and then you don't think about it afterwards. It's a, it's, um, a piece worth going back and finding. That's really interesting. So we'll we'll link that in the when this gets posted, we'll link that piece. Sorry, Doug, I didn't mean to I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, I, I was just going to say I I agree with with Tracy's point. One of the, you know one of the things that really struck me um, as somebody who kind of made fun of the Beto phenomenon during the race, and then was surprised at how genuinely genuinely close he made it was uh, the day after, or maybe it was Thursday. Uh, a friend of mine who works at Daily Costs. Um, posted a picture or posted a video on her on her uh, Facebook page um, that was an interview that she did or or some statement she was putting out. And it started with, even though we didn't have some of the marquee wins that we wanted, right? Democrats won about 35 House seats, maybe more. Exactly. And and they're starting with a negative. Like, you know, you took took over the House. You had big gains in the the governor's races and some state houses and so forth. And sure, flipping a state house isn't, you know, as going to be as perceived as big, um, you know, as as the house or, you know, whatever. But um, you had big gains. And, and to start off with a negative told me a whole lot. And I think, you know, every every two years, Republicans and Democrats have their own kind of parochial favorites that they want to win. But Beto, to me, was always more of a cause than he was a candidate. And so, you know, most of the Democrats that I've talked to would, you know, drink the Beto Kool-Aid. And, well, if we flip the Nevada seat, well, that's nice, too. If we flip the Arizona seat, that's nice, too. But Beto's a cause. And that's a much different reaction. And ultimately didn't work. They won Arizona. They won Nevada. Congratulations. And they're still upset that they, they didn't win Texas. And sure that it was Ted Cruz certainly played a role as well. But, you know, it was a good night. Why do you start off with a negative? I, I absolutely could not possibly agree more. I, I observed that we have a little we have a little chat room that now has sort of thirty people, which kind of lets me know what the temperature is of everybody on politics. And yeah, the the reaction was, well, we're really sad, but but at least thank God we got the house. Yeah, where it should be. How great is it on the house? Too bad we didn't get our guy Beto through. Yeah. Right. Too 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 bad we didn't also win Florida, and we didn't also win Texas, and we didn't also get the Senate. Yeah, exactly. And I would say the the one other kind of complicating factor on it is the elections today are better for the Democrats than they were on last Wednesday morning. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you look at races that have been called Arizona being the most recent example. You know, that's kind of played a role that that the narratives get defined on election night, um, not in what actually happens when all the votes are counted. So that plays somewhat of a role. But I I still think the emphasis is um, is wrong here. This was a terrible night for Republicans. Since we're on a, a terrible night for Republicans, I'm, I, there's been something that has been we've been going back and forth on quite a bit, which is the post-Trump GOP. And there are some people, actually most people that I know, whose theory it is that there will be some rubber banding. The GOP will just sort of seem more or less seamlessly go back to what it was or what it what it perceived itself to be at least before the Trump phenomenon started to happen. Is that something that you subscribe to, Doug? Or or what do you think is going to happen once Trump is no longer? The, sh- the short answer is I don't know. Um, I understand that theory. I, I think elements of it are possible. Um, 
Some people have been so changed by this presidency, um, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, um, that it may be hard for them to flip back again. Um, but in the meantime, you know, regardless of what the party does, um, we will have spent, you know, a good two, four, or maybe more years um, basically telling minority voters, um, college-educated white women, that we're not interested in their votes, essentially. And, you know, so a lot of how I view the election isn't so much what happened in this race versus that race, but kind of what, what's the direction of where voters are going. And what we've seen is it really is a continuation of this realignment to where the Republicans are going to be a, a rural party and Democrats are going to be an urban and suburban party. Well, what parts of the country are growing? Um, that doesn't bode well for Republicans. So the party can do whatever it decides to do, not that the party's one monolithic entity, but um, ultimately we've turned off a lot of voters, and I haven't even talked about you know younger voters who came to the polls in record numbers. And you, know, you vote more when you're 22 than when you're 20, and when you're 24 than when you're 22, and we've turned them off for a generation as well. So you know, the party is going to do what it's going to do. I'm not smart enough to know what it is, but the damage is going to be long-lasting regardless of you know, how the party reacts. There's been um, some really great analyses on Doug's point uh, broadly, and I think that the best summary is really nothing that's happening demographically in this country is good for Republicans. Do you think, actually, Tracy, that the Democrats did did as good of a job as they should have done turning out those voters? Do you think that speaks more to how, how passionately the voters feel? Or do you feel that the Democrats finally stuck to their message and, and did their thing that they needed to do on the ground to turn out voters? Well, I would remove the, the variable of stuck to their message because I don't believe that there's a singular message per se. But So let's take the message piece out of it. I think that there's not yet enough good sort of high-level reporting about the nascent efforts among Democrats to put together things that we've never done before, trainings, convenings, recruitments, massive gatherings across the country where um, people who expressed interest in running were really cultivated and connected with professionals and People were given tools to run a campaign and to create all of the uh, sort of the structure of a campaign. There's many, many groups that have sprung up in the past two years to do just that. And I don't think that they've gotten enough attention, in part because they're not being led by some of the Democrats who are more front facing, but these are sort of more the, you know, workhorse. Democratic operatives who say, okay, I'm going to put some sort of organization together that is going to focus exclusively on candidate recruitment, first-time candidates. And lo and behold, they get hundreds, if not thousands of people. And you can't discount the, the role that that has had, but I don't think it's gotten the attention that it deserves. I do think that those efforts are only going to grow and magnify and really get louder. I think that the, the story of 2020 could be the success of the, the sort of cottage industry of 
recruitment and training groups that the Democratic Party has borne. One of the stories of this year, certainly, has been the Me Too movement. And you're you're on the board of directors of RAIN. I was wondering, uh, particularly RAIN's hotlines, what happened on RAIN's hotlines before and after the Kavanaugh situation? Uh, unprecedented and stunning to see the the hotline, which has been in operation now for several years and which has served um, upwards of two, 2.7 million survivors. Um, but the spike in calls was extraordinary around the Kavanaugh hearings, particularly the day that Dr. Blasey Ford testified and the day following that. And when I say extraordinary, I'm talking 200, 400% increases in the number of people picking up the phone and dialing the number and saying, I need to talk to somebody. Um, the the only prior spike that the organization had seen quite like that was around the time that the Penn State abuse controversies were very much dominating the news with um, football coach and sports teams and the Penn State um scandals and the tragic stories from that campus really spiked numbers. And even those spikes proved to be nothing like what we saw with Kavanaugh. And that um, that will forever give me pause to think about how profoundly um, affected people around the country were to be seeing and hearing those images and those words and realizing that they themselves needed to talk to someone and to get some help for themselves. Uh, the biggest onus for RAIN, of course, is to be able to answer all of those calls and to be able to keep up with that demand. And I give all credit to the organization and the staff and the people who work on that hotline and the way that we have brought new people on and trained them and gotten them on the phones and gotten them on the, the text lines as well. Um, Rain is committed to being able to answer every call, no matter how many calls. And that's a lofty goal. And Kavanaugh, all things Kavanaugh, has really pushed Rain to a new level in that regard. And it's, um, it's sobering. And it's an honor to be part of an organization that does such important work and also continually steps up the game as needed. Mm -hmm. And as the father of a 15-year-old daughter, I would like to thank you for being on that particular, uh, on the board of that particular organization. They really do extremely important work. Well, that's a great thing for a dad to say. Thank you. I was going to ask Doug how he feels about the about the Me Too situation. But do you have feelings about about Me Too? It's an issue Tracy and I have talked about, and I've you know I've gone to rain events that that she sponsored and so forth um, in in the past. But I, I think it's brought out you know a lot of um, a lot of important things, and that women are feeling empowered to to tell their stories when they've been treated in a, in a terrible way can only be a good thing. Yeah, I I, com I absolutely one hundred percent agree. I love having Doug's support. That's something that's been true for him for a long time. Which actually leads me to a question I was going to ask at the beginning, but then I, I, I traveled off into other territory. How did the Doug and Tracy show originally come about? How did that actually happen? I, I don't know. Do you? No idea. I mean, we're both, so we're both friends with Julie's. We've known her for a long time. I don't remember the first time we did the show together. I remember we got a lot of tweets, but I don't, I don't remember. And we've done, what, a couple of TV hits. 
Um, we do talks from time to time um, in front of, you know, business groups or, or one that we do every year that's coming up in December um, is a group of uh, the, the Defense College from the U.K., um, over at the British Embassy, which is like our favorite one to do. For sure. Um, other than dually support. But uh, otherwise, I don't know. I mean, we've known each other for 10 plus years now and, you know, like talking about this stuff. What what makes you occasionally grumpy, Doug? I don't occasionally, know. We've, we've had, we've had the odd... Real, is that what it is? Because yeah. I was gonna. You're you're tall. You're handsome. You go on dates with Sarah Silverman. You can even pull off a a well placed pocket square. Thank you. And yet, and yet, original is uh, occasionally when when you do the show, there seems to be a bee in the proverbial dog bonnet. If well, okay. So I usually walk here. So you know, if if you know, walking here can sometimes be a bit arduous. So that could put you in a bad mood. Um, okay, walking. I'll write it down. Tracy, walking. Yeah. Tracy or, and or Julie may say something that may set me off. But no, I'll usually, I'll sit down. I'll tell them if I'm in a good mood or not. But I usually am in a good mood. I think it's actually that you're one of the few people who admits when they're not in a good mood. <laughs> Which just gives context for when I get, you know, whatever I say. I think that the, the little rap you just gave about Doug, you know, Tall, handsome, going out with Sarah Silverman, rocking the ascot, and so on and so forth. Because Doug was late to the show that we did with Julie today. I technically was on time. He didn't hear what I was saying, which was that I'm going to rewrite his bio. And I think you just gave me <laughs> what I, I will make his new bio. And we'll just, we'll add in the grumpy thing. And uh, I think it'll be a lot more authentic. I'm usually in a good mood, so I don't know what to tell you. Seen, and now he already sounds grumpy. See, it's, it's that. It's, it's <laughs> this. It, it's actually this. When you talk about Doug being grumpy, it makes him grumpy. There so you we, go. Will, we will stop. In, instead, I'm not going to ask you a different question, which will make you even potentially grumpier. Um, you you served as the senior advisor of the Iowa Republican Party. Mm -hmm. uh, managing their communications. Do you have any advice for your friends in Iowa how to handle Steve King? Uh, yeah, vote no. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> unfortunately it's too late for that now. You know, the, the, the challenge is it's a it's a very very heavily Republican district, so you're going to have to beat him in a primary most likely. Um, you know, this, his opponent this time came close, and I think came close in probably the best way possible, which is catching him by surprise. Um, which won't happen again. So if you're going to beat Steve King, you have to beat him in a primary. And I don't know how you do that, to be honest. What's interesting about the Steve King phenomenon is that everybody's acting really surprised that that's actually happening. And now everybody's like, you know what? I, I, we think this guy might be a racist. Yeah. As if it had not occurred to anybody before. But apparently district is so heavily Republican that that does not render him unelectable. Well, there's, um, speaking as the Iowan here, there's two other things with King that, have always been interesting to me, one being what he's delivered for his district in terms of, you know, those things that Congress people are supposed to go to Washington and do. He delivers. Um, secondly, there's actually a very large state university also in his district. And one would think that um, a more intentional integration of a public university into uh, a campaign against King could have some traction. I'm not aware of what they did or didn't do with the campus this time around, but a lot of people didn't even realize, you know, D.C. people, like, wait, there's 
a university. I thought it was just farms, you know. So there's there's not a very coherent understanding of his district. Yeah, and I'd say at the same time, when you are in those parts of his district that are farms, uh, there's a town called Emmitsburg that I've been in a couple of times in kind of the northeast corner or northwest corner of the state. Um, you know, they don't they're not watching the national news all day like we are. They're probably not reading the Des Moines Register. So, and if they do any of those, they probably come at it from a, you know, certainly from the folks that I've talked to, from a, a pretty skeptical eye of them. So they're not paying attention to the day-to-day -day outrage um, that we'll see on TV about Steve King, and they're not reading the Des Moines Register. So it's not really registering with them as voters um, if they get worked up about it um, anyways. But it doesn't register with them the way that it does here because we always have to be outraged about something, whether it's really outrageous or not, obviously. Right. I have some uh, Pulligan-submitted questions, if you will indulge me for a little bit longer. Sure. The first one is very brief, and this is from your from fellow North Carolinian, Unruly Julie. She wants me to ask Doug, your favorite coach, A, Dean, B, Roy, C, are you fucking kidding me? They're both gods. Um, a before B with a little bit of C. I saw Roy Wiggins this weekend, actually. He, he drove past in his car when I was in Chapel Hill. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bubbles the Vampire rather predictably asks, you, we need to know your favorite hard and soft cheeses if you have such, because we need to we need to keep uh, on with the with the Pooligans cheese theme. So, uh, Aplaise is the greatest soft cheese in the world. I prefer soft cheeses. Um, cow over sheep, though I really love sheep. Um, goat is fine. Don't love it. Blue is eh, okay when it is necessary, but I don't think it's usually necessary. How about that? Tracy, I, w I, Tracy, I would make sure to uh, add the beginning of that particular answer to what you were writing to your biography of Doug. Um, yes, yes, sure. Yeah, uh, Maybe with this emoji. <laughs> Do you have any favorite hard and soft cheeses or are you not a cheese fan? Um, I have a very dear friend uh, who she and I will frequently begin conversations with each other by saying, Do you like cheese? And we do that because it is the most unnecessary question. We both <laughs> love cheese. We love all cheeses. I don't discriminate my cheeses. I don't rank order my cheeses. Just the other day, I even had a cranberry brie that I'd never tasted in my life, and it was amazing, and I didn't know if I was even going to care for it. So all things cheese are all things fine with me. See, I tend to agree with that, but I don't like things in my cheese. I didn't think I would. But this was delicious. I like cranberries, but why would I want that in my cheese? Because the I cheese know, is already... Right? It was a risk. Yeah. Completely, a, completely agree with you, Doug. Truffle cheese? No way. Why would you do that? No, no, that shouldn't be. Some things just should be separate. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my final question, this is very dear to my heart. I am the owner of a golden retriever. Now, as, as you know, Julie, or as you may know, Julie, not a fan of golden retrievers. She calls them basic dogs, derisively. <laughs> um... What is your stance on golden retrievers and basic dogs? Do you have a heart for them? And are they truly basic? Julie feels very strongly about this. You know, we're actually right across the hall from her studio right now. And I wonder if she's going to come storming in here because she'll sense that we're having this discussion. Most golden retrievers that I know, I know through various um, emotional support, therapy dogs. Mm -hmm. I've met some beautiful dogs. I've met dogs inside the Capitol who are there because they are various types of service dogs. And for Goldens to do that job and to do it so well, that ain't basic. Thank you.
Tracy with the excellent non-basic defense. Thank you. Doug, how do you feel about goalies? Um, I, I'm, I'm fine with them. Um, I've never had a pet, so whatever. Um, I don't have a problem with dogs. I tend to have a problem with dog owners. So if you want to know why I'm grumpy sometimes, if I'm walking to the studio here and there's a dog that's blocking my path because the owner bought one of these leashes that extends 50 yards, bad. that's bad. But that's not the dog's fault. Mm-mm. It's trying to, I believe in born free, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't necessarily have a, a favorite breed, uh, but most of my friends' dogs I like. I like my, yeah, in fact, one of my best friends had to put down oh. his dog of 14 years, oh. like about three months ago. And I got to say, I was like genuinely sad about it. And I bet it was a good dog. Is. Yeah, it was a really good dog. Oh, now I miss mine. Oh, wait, do, do, the one that you currently have, or the a dog that I currently have, and I believe I tweeted a photo of her today in response to all of this chatter. She's not. Ah, I didn't see that. You tweeted a photo of your dog. We uh, well, we're going to link everybody to it. it in that case. We'll we'll retweet that. Her name is Dixie. What is Dixie? Well, Dixie is uh, part Muppet, part teddy bear, part unknown. Mm, the best kind. And, um, she she was about the size of a Dixie cup when we found her. And and how long has she been with you? Four years. I'm I'm sure she's in excellent excellent hands. I didn't think that you were allowed to call anything Dixie anymore. Like that that's part <laughs> of the you know patrimony blah blah blah. Like Dixie's out. You I mean, can't say Dixie anymore. It's just like Trump's tariffs. There are some exemptions, <laughs> and my daughter right. is an exemption. Yes. Okay. Dick, yes, she has been granted an exemption. Uh, guys, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I know everybody will be super excited to hear this interview, and thanks for taking the time. Anytime. Happy to. It was a pleasure. Thanks for working with us to get it set up. Thank you so much, and I, I will talk to both of you really soon. Okay. Take care.